0: On top of this, we are going to look at the biggest section of Exodus so far, and probably the most difficult to deal with, so uh, put on your seat belts, as they say. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at the last part of Exodus 20 through verse 19 of chapter 23. Don't worry, we're not going to look at every verse. Uh, And there's a reason we'll look at every verse, because obviously we would normally look at every verse. But let's, let me just start by reading the last verses of chapter 20 and then pray one more time. And then we'll get into it together. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 22. Sorry, I'm going to start that over again. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 22 And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. And if you make for me an altar of stone, you you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you wield your tools on it, you will profane it. You shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Verse 21 of chapter, verse 1 of chapter 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And Father, we pray that you would help us as we go over these quote-unquote rules, that, Lord, we wouldn't be sucked into being led by rules, but we would see how you are revealing yourself through this, that you might lead us by your Spirit for your glory. Lord, we pray that you bless this time in your word. As quickly as we do this, we pray, God, that you would still help us to glean what you want us to glean and that you would help us to grow through this. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And again, everyone who sa- who agrees says. Amen. Now, if we were go- to go through this section, uh, really this is one section from where we started here, you know, or we're starting here in chapter 21 all the way through chapter 23. This is one section that's often referred as referred to as the book of the covenant. And it is really, in a sense, God specifically saying, I want to give a breakdown of how the Ten Commandments that I gave you are to work themselves out in real life. But what's interesting, if you were to read this, and I really encourage you to go back and read through this whole section on your own, you're going to see some really strange laws. Some even might seem a bit unjust to our 21st century eyes. I mean, let me give you some examples here. Okay, uh, look look at chapter what we just read, chapter twenty, verse twenty six. You shall not go up to my steps, by my altar, lest your nakedness not be exposed on it. I, I mean, doesn't God already see everything? That's kind of weird. What about this in chapter twenty one, verse seventeen? Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Should we have a little stony den for the toddlers? Verse 20 and 21. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Ooh, that sounds harsh. What about this? Verse 22, verse 9, chapter 22, verse 19. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Does that even need to be a rule? What about chapter 23, verse 19? You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, that ruins my afternoon plans. (laughs) This is weird stuff. This sometimes even seems like unjust stuff. And it's important for us to recognize that if we are going to rightly understand and rightly apply what this says... There's some things we really need to recognize, some really important things. This is probably going to be the longest introduction I've ever given. But I'm giving this so so that we can recognize what we're meant to recognize from God's law. The first thing we need to recognize is this. Listen, God has called Israel, in this historical context, God has called Israel to represent his unique goodness through the same everyday issues of life as the surrounding nations. Now, some of you may have heard of other Near Eastern ancient law codes like the Code of Hammurabi. There are several of these. And these ancient law codes are usually kind of brought into a Christian's attention to say, hey, there's nothing unique about the Ten Commandments. Because there's so many similarities to these ancient law codes as to what we're about to read. But the reason there are similarities is because God is calling his people to live out his commands, to follow him in covenant in their everyday life circumstances, which were the same everywhere in the Near East. They're just not the same as they are today. And so it's important for us to recognize that, that those kind of connections are there on purpose. God is very practical, very right now, how he wants to see his word applied. In fact, we're going to see though that there is something different about the things that God commands that we 're different from, say, the code of Hammurabi. But it's also for us to, to, it's important for us to recognize that the, po- the point of God doing this is because he wants He wants the nations surrounding Israel to see His unique goodness. God wants to show himself through His people following him in obedience in everyday life. Listen to this in Deuteronomy chapter four. God commands about his law, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding. Notice, in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? So, there's something unique not only about these laws for that day, but about the God who gives them, the same God who we're called to serve. Listen to this. We see this in verse 24, right? That God has promised to bless Israel with his presence. Now, we're going to talk about the reality of God's presence among his people from chapters 25 to 40. But I want you to notice in verse 24, what was the command that God gives Moses? If you remember from from last week, Moses is actually up on the mountain. He's up on the mountain of God that God's people were not allowed to even get close to. They had to be just in earshot of God speaking. But if they were to touch the mountain, they were to to invade the holiness of God and they would feel the consequences. But then here we have God saying, listen, when you build an altar, forget about the mountain where there's trembling and smoke and, and, and terror. When you build a small altar out of dirt and you sacrifice burnt offerings, which would be a way to say, God, we're consecrated to you, and peace offerings, which were a way to say, God, we want to fellowship with you. When you do this, I'm going to be right there. I'm going to be there in, in your presence. I'm going to make my presence to be where you are. See, God wants to bless his people with his presence. This is important because these laws are bigger than just rules. They're about God wanting, again, to show himself to his people and through his people. But also he says in verse 25, as we just read, he says, If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. In other words, don't get stones and chip them away so they they look nice and fit nice uh, together. He says, For if you wield your your, your tool on it, you will profane it. Now, as we mentioned last week, and we're going to see in further chapters, this is not God forbidding Artistry, or artistic expression, or creativity in our worship. But what he is saying here is, listen. He's saying I want God wants worship to reflect His work, not ours. So again, when we're thinking about these rules, this is not about I got to prove to everybody how good God is. No, I I I want to show people how good our God is by doing this. It's not on pressure on me to somehow be God's defender. God wants us to worship in a way that shows His work, not ours. And when you drop down to verse one of chapter twenty-one, notice, notice what he says. Now these are the rules which you should set before him. And, and it's interesting that word's kind of a bit—it's it, a, it's a bit misleading, because the idea here, really, as we see in the context, these are less about hard and fast rules that people would take out and say, "Ah, look, you can't have a cheeseburger because this is close to you know a goat and you know and mother's milk and stuff. You can't be doing that." This is less about that, and it's more about listen. These are like case studies by which. God's people were meant to know what, how God would have them apply the law. In fact, in the context, if you remember a few chapters ago, that, that even before God gave his law, he tells Moses uh, through his, son, his father-in-law Jethro, you remember, hey, gather a bunch of people so they can make these judgments. This is God in saying, okay, here's my law that's not changing. Here's some case studies of how you can apply it. And that's what we're going to read today. Now, it's also important for us to remember, okay, as New Testament believers, as Jesus followers, okay? This is a clear teaching of the scripture, and that is that Jesus and the Holy Spirit actually, in a sense, replace the Old Testament law. That we're not being necessarily guided by these case studies, because a lot of them won't make sense to our culture. That we're guided by who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and how Jesus has given us his spirit to dwell on us, to empower us, and to lead us as we go. We read again last week in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But also listen to this, 2 Corinthians 3, 6 says, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter that is of the law, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. If you think, okay, I want to follow God, I want to do what He says, that's great. If you think, therefore, I'm going to make sure that I keep all these laws, you're going to find yourself... In a difficult position. That's not what God calls us to. So at this point, you might ask yourself so why even look at this stuff? Why even study this stuff? Well, this is why. Listen to this. Because the New Testament does also encourage us to be instructed by all Scripture. This is also plain. Again, what did Paul write in Romans 15, 4? He says, For whatever is written in former days, that's talking about the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Our hope is in God. And the Scriptures reveal what our God is like. And Paul says even clearer to Timothy, listen, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. These rules... That were for Israel, applying His commandments at this time were breathed out by God. This are inspired by God, and they're proper for us for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This can help us follow God, to know God, and to make Him known. So, with all this in mind, okay, recognizing all this, we're not going to look at every verse. But we are going to, I think, glean five, we're going to identify five principles that God wants us to glean from these rules. So are your seatbelts still on? That was an 11-minute intro. You guys ready? Here we go. First thing we want to see is God wants us to serve him from love. Look at verse 2 of chapter 21. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for Nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out to, with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons and daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master and my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to, the, to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Usually there'd be an earring put in there as well. Now some stuff we have to understand this right off the bat. and You can continue to read about rules regarding uh, slaves in chapter, in verse 7 to verse 11 later on. But it's important we understand, first of all, this is not slavery as we think of it. It really isn't. In fact... The kind of slavery we usually think about when we hear the word slave or servant is we tend to think of forced slavery. But forced slavery is strictly forbidden even in these rules right here. Look at verse twenty or chapter 21, verse 16. What does it say? Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So the kinds of transatlantic sort of slavery that we finally abolished in this country in the U.S., a bit late, but better late than never, when that finally happened, that was finally in accordance with what God had said well over 4,000 years ago. Okay? In fact, listen, this kind of servanthood was a way that people could who were in great debt and couldn't get out of debt, could help get out of debt. And listen, there were limits to protect those people that were in debt. Listen to this again, Deuteronomy chapter 15. If your brother, a Hebrew man or Hebrew woman is sold to you, you he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free. Now, that doesn't mean he has to serve six years. It means he can only serve a maximum of six years as to pay off his debt. And notice, when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord God redeemed you, therefore I command you this today. Do you see the difference? God is saying, not only do you give him a chance to pay off his debt, but no matter how bad that debt is, no more than six years, and then after six years, you set him free, and you give him what he needs to start fresh. It's a big difference, isn't it? It's also important for us to recognize that slavery, as we normally see it, was actually undone by the influence of the gospel. And we even see this hinted in the New Testament. Listen to this in Philemon 1, verse 15 and 16. Listen, it says... This is is Paul writing to a slave owner named Philemon, because his runaway slave, Onesimus, ran away uh, by God's providence, met Paul, got saved, and Paul says, you should go back. And so Paul writes a letter to Philemon saying, hey, uh, get prepared for this. And so when he says this, he says, listen, perhaps... Uh, For this, perhaps, is why Onesimus departed from you for a while, that you might have him back, notice, forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. That is the seed that undid slavery. And this is still the seed that will undo slavery today. This is what people need to hear. Now, in, in our Western culture, this seems so common sense, but it's common sense because the gospel is something that we don't see. It's like the, as one author said, it's like the air we're breathing. It's so influenced our culture. And slavery is still a common thing today. Now, all that put aside, listen, this is interesting. Because this picture, especially as we read how the, the, the servant can say, you know, actually, I want to stay a slave or a servant forever. This is yet to be a picture of God's plan to save us. Because here's what we know. Jesus became a servant to save us, and he calls us all to serve, serve him or serve everyone to show it. Listen to this. Though Christ was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave, his, gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born a human being. Why? To save us. This is why Jesus himself says this in in Mark chapter 10, verse 45 being our theme verse for our church, right? We're servants church because Jesus is the servant and we belong to him. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, Jesus said, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, Jesus says about himself, came not to be served but to serve and to give his his life a ransom for many. So not only does the seed of the gospel undo slavery, Christ in his coming shows us the beauty of servanthood to bring people to God. That's the first principle. Here's the second principle. God wants us to be self-controlled in conflict. Now this is going to be from chapter 21, verse 12, to verse 27, but we're not going to look at all the verses. Just look with me quickly at at verse 18 of chapter 21 He says when a man when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed then if a man rises again walks outdoors with a staff who is uh, uh, he who struck him shall be cleared only he shall pay for the loss of time and shall have uh, and shall have him thoroughly healed this idea of, of a man striking a man or quarreling with a man, this is something that should be pretty obvious to us. You see it again. There's another circumstance with a, maybe a, a master to a slave, verse 20, when a man strikes a slave. Verse 22, when men simply strive together, it says. The point is, and this should be pretty obvious to us, in this broken world, and the Bible is very honest about the brokenness of the world we live in, there's going to be conflict, even violent conflict. And so what God does here is he limits it. In fact, he says, even as us as God's people, it's it's important for us to understand that we're not immune to conflict. In fact, even godly ministers and missionaries have conflict with each other. We see this in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, a conflict between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas' name even means a son of encouragement. Listen, it says, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. These guys were partners in ministry and they conflicted so hard they divided. The issue is not that we're going to stop all conflict. That will not stop until we're all changed and resurrected. But we still need to learn how to be self-controlled in conflict. Now we just read in verse 18 uh, 18 and 19 that there is this sense of they're going to quarrel, but if there's an injury that happens... If there's an injury that happens, then you know what? They injured the, the person who did the injuring, he needs to compensate the person who's been injured. So there's not like you get off scot-free fighting is no big deal. In fact, if we look at verse 23, here's what we find out. In verses 23 and 24 of, of twenty chapter 21, look what it says. It says, for, But if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wood, uh, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, at first reading, you might think this is like, okay, you poked out my eye, you don't poke it out your eye. You burn me, I'm going to burn you, and that is our natural inclination. But actually, what God's doing is because our natural inclination is not just you poked out my, you blackened into my eye, I'm going to black yours. Our natural inclination is, and I know this firsthand, you black my eye, I'm going to black to yours. You hit me, I'm going to hit you back several times. This is how we, our human hearts respond. So what God is doing here is he's limiting what that response can be. In fact, this is not an encouragement of violence, but a limit on vengeance. Fast forward to the New Testament, and we get this spelled out really clearly about all conflicts, not just violent conflicts, about any conflicts we would maybe, maybe even have as God's people. Listen, Romans chapter 12, Paul writes, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. But associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. How do we stay self-controlled in conflict? This is God's principle to his people 4,000 years ago. How much more? We read right there in Romans 12 how we do that. And I hope we feel the need for God's spirit to empower us to do it. Because we really need him to help us to do this. So second principle, God wants us to be self-controlled in conflict. Third principle, God wants us to use resources responsibly. Look at verse 28 of chapter 21. When an ox scores a man or a woman to death, and I know you're all thinking about, what do we do with our ox this morning? This is what you're thinking of, right? The ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the the ox shall be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox uh, shall be stoned and its owner shall be put to death. Do you see what's going on here? God's spelling out a principle of, listen, we're not going to hold people responsible for accidents. But we are going to hold them responsible for recognizing and preventing risks. This is why we do what's called the risk assessments, because we're responsible for this stuff. Again, this might think like, well, duh, common sense, but this isn't always the way it was. This is something that God introduces through his law. Drop down to verse 35 of chapter 21. When one man's ox butts another, again, something's going to happen to us t- today, probably, right? Yeah. Um, when one man's box, uh, ox box butts another and so that it dies, they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast they also shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and the owner shall not be kept uh, or not, has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. Do you see what's going on here? It's saying, listen, you need to be careful. that You're not vilifying each other when things go pear-shaped. See what's actually gone wrong, and then be willing to share responsibility. Isn't that a great? Isn't that a great principle for us using our resources to share responsibility? We don't tend to do that, do we? We tend to say that guy's the bad guy. I'm the good guy. But often, sometimes we're both involved. I like the fact too that it's kind of like okay. So your ox died, that's a bummer, let's have a barbecue. That's kind of nice too. <laughs> See, we are accountable for how our resources impact others. But also, if you go down to, to chapter 22, verse 1, we are to make restitution, not just show repentance. This is part of us using our resources responsibly. Look at verse 20, verse 1 of 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it and sells it, He shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing then, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. Now this gets really complicated, especially in America where they still believe in people can still have guns. <laughs> and uh, it's not, uh, by the way, if you're tempted to steal or break into someone's house, don't do it in America. Probably a bad idea. Just say it. But the truth is, what, what, what he's saying here is if you can stop the person without hurting them, that's what you should do. But if you can't, there's nothing you could do about it. It's their fault for breaking in. That's kind of the idea. But notice also what's happening here. He's saying, listen, if you have material loss, there should be material restitution. And if the person can't bring material restitution, he should go and have that six years of having to pay that off. I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit fairer to me than jail. Because what happens when we throw them in jail? Does anybody get restored for what's been stolen? No. That, just, that dude's in jail, and oftentimes that, that man or woman is in jail. Usually a man, things are worse for them, not better. Interesting. But also look at verse 14 and 15 of, of chapter 22. What does he say? If a man borrows anything of his neighbor, uh, it is injured, or, and an injured it is injured or dies, the owner not being with him, he shall make full restitution. In other words, you borrow something, you break it, you should pay for it. If the owner was with him, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for the hiring price. In other words, if I hire you to, to you know, rotovate my garden and your rotovator breaks, it ain't my fault. I hired you to do it. But if I borrow your rotovator and it breaks, I should pay for it to be fixed. The reason this is important is because when it comes to responsibility for restitution, there's a real need for us to be rightly discerning how we do this. Now, again, you might think, okay, that's kind of interesting. Also, kind of common sense. But it does fast forward to the New Testament in this. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Speaking of God wanting to use our resources responsibly, listen. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Again, if all of this is about God wanting to make himself known, his goodness known through his people who obey his good laws, who keep his good guidance. And listen, this is about saying, God, here are the resources I have. I want to earn these resources fairly, and I want to be generous with these uh, these resources to make your goodness known. Do you see how the principle works? Fourth principle. God wants us to protect the most vulnerable, and probably here lies the most distinct Aspect of God's law versus all the other Near East uh, rules of law. First of all, we see in this text, and again, this would be from chapter 22, verse 16, all the way through chapter 23, verse 9. Not going to look at all the verses, but we do want to see how God identifies the most vulnerable. Look at verse 16 of chapter 22. If a man seduces a virgin, a virgin being a young, unmarried woman in that culture, incredibly vulnerable. Verse 21 of of chapter 22. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. That might be something like who's a foreigner, an immigrant. Again, in any culture, still, that is some of the most vulnerable. Verse 22 of chapter 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Widows, orphans, these are still among the most vulnerable. In that day, they were vulnerable uh, both because they didn't have sort of the protection, the, the physical protection of, of male headship, but also uh, they were vulnerable uh, financially because they couldn't provide for themselves. In our day, many orphans and widows are still vulnerable financially because we live in a society that, that needs two incomes for people to survive and if they didn't have any kind of life insurance and something happens to the father, they're usually in a bad way. And also, as we saw from the video, we all felt, I hope, when there's tragedy of any kind, people are in, in a real vulnerable place. But also look at verse 22 I'm sorry, uh, chapter 22, verses 25 to 27. "If you lend money to any of my people with you, who is poor? You shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Can you hear God's fatherly heart there? God is saying really clear. listen, the poor in this context would be those who are impoverished through debts. It was almost it was, it was impossible once you got in debt to get out of it. Hence the kind of allowance for this indentured servitude for six years. But also, can you hear God's heart besides saying once they've paid it off or done their best to pay it off, you send them out, right? He's saying, listen, make sure that these people are not charged interest. You guys know what payday loans are? I wonder if any of you have ever had to get a payday loan they charge sometimes up to 100% interest, or at least they used to. I think there's laws now changing that. So that if you are broke on Friday and you're not going to have any money till next Friday and you've got a bill to pay or food to get on the table and you borrow 75 pounds to do those two things for that week, then the next week you get a payday and you go to pay that off, they go, ah, and, you, know, you owe me 150 pounds. And then you can't pay that off, and so you go, okay, can I have one more week and the next week you owe 300 pounds. Now, I think there's some injustice the way the money lenders do that even today as banks. But the principle is, listen, it's not that you can't loan money and not expect anything back, though Jesus tells us we should do it with each other, doesn't he? But the issue is, listen, if you're giving someone, if you're helping someone, don't expect any interest on it. Help them. Recognize how vulnerable. And this is why, listen, he says, because I am compassionate God expects us to treat each other in such a way that when people, when, when, when one of us is more vulnerable, we're going to protect that. We're going to honor that by not putting more pressure on them, hence the video, hence the preparation. This is what we, where we want to be. It's not easy. Again, I hope. Listen, I hope as you're recognizing the principle behind these laws, you're recognizing your need for God's Holy Spirit to give you the power to walk in this. Listen, compassion is the the distinction of our God. Matthew says of Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I love this is the way that Jesus views us even though he recognizes that we are those who are prone to do so much sin, including turning our backs on him. He still has compassion. So God identifies the most vulnerable because he has compassion on the most vulnerable. Then he calls us, listen, if we're gonna protect them, he calls us to love with an impartial judgment. Look at chapter 23, verse one, one to three. He says, you shall not spread a false report you shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall with uh, with the many to do evil. You shall bear witness in a lawsuit citing, uh, uh, citing with it, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Do you see this? We talk about unconditional love but that's actually kind of a misnomer. In one sense, there's no such thing. Only God within himself has unconditional love. He had to make us before we could experience love. It was conditioned on him making us before we could experience his love. He he can give us his love forever because of what Christ has done for us. But it's conditioned on what Christ has done for us. But here's what we can show, impartial love. And impartial love means, listen, that even if the whole majority says, this is how something should be, if God says it some way, we say, no, we're sorry. We love you too much to, to, to compromise what God says over what the majority say. Because do you realize, again, connecting back to some of the most vulnerable, connecting back to what the Bible says about slavery, do you realize the reason it was so hard to overturn slavery in this country, and even more so in the U.S., is because there was an economic dependency on it. And the majority wanted it to remain but the majority were wrong. And God was right. It was right that it got overturned. And we need to be the same way. Protecting the most vulnerable means we recognize what's wrong. We, we do not pervert justice for anyone, even the majority. But we also don't pervert justice for the person that's poor. <laughs> that person's vulnerable. It doesn't matter that they stole or murdered or abused their spouse. No, no, no. They need some serious help, but they still have to be accountable. That's the point as well. But also listen, if you look at uh, verse 9 of chapter 23, loving with impartial judgment means not forgetting what vulnerability feels like. Because we've all been there. Look at verse 9. God says, you shall not oppress the sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Do you know what it feels like to be a foreigner? Do you know what it feels like to be in a place where you know you don't actually belong? Uh, In this congregation, there's many who definitely feel that way. It's not easy. Have you ever been ever in a circumstance where you, you, you kind of step into a group and it's obvious you don't belong in this group? How difficult is that? Magnify that for the person who comes to a country and they cannot speak the language. They have no idea how to get help and they have no idea what their future looks like magnified that more if they were forced to come into that country because of extenuating circumstances. And again, this is not political about what immigration law should be. It's about our hearts towards the sojourner. Why? Because we should know what it's like. Listen. Listen. God wants us to protect the most vulnerable. And again, this is echoed into the New Testament. James 1.27, religion that is pure and defiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is what we need to glean. Lastly, I'm almost done. The last principle we want to see. God wants us to worship obediently. I struggled with naming this last principle, to be honest, because I wasn't sure, how, how, do I, how do I get what's going on here? God is commanding that we worship him in ways that, that are so refreshing, so good, but they are really distinct. And it hit me as we go over these things, I hope you see this, that that really when God commands, not only that we worship him alone, but how we worship him, he's doing so, listen, he's doing so for our good. So when he calls us to distinct obedience, it's for our good. Look at verse 10 of chapter 23. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest. So we've seen the pattern. We'll see it again in a second of six days and you rest on the seventh. Here's six years and you rest on the seventh. Let it rest and life follow, he says verse 11, that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat and you shall delight, do likewise with your vineyards and with your olive orchards. Six days you shall do your work but on the seventh day you shall rest and that your ox and your donkey may have rest that your son and your servant uh, woman may and the alien may be refreshed. Do you see what God's saying here? Listen, he's saying, here's what I'm commanding that you do, that worship for you should be rest. And all those who serve on Sunday morning go, ah, I'm not too sure about that. Some of us who serve all day on Sunday go, ah, I'm not too sure about that. But this is really important for us to get, guys. Really important. Because what God's command here is this. It's for us to find the rest he provides. In this context, God says, I want the land to rest. And, and don't think like everyone's producing everywhere and every bit of land for six years. People, poor people are starving and that the animal population is depleting. No, it's the idea of rotating crops. So there would always be a crop that was left fallow for a year. Always be some area in Israel where there would be fallow ground and things could grow wild and poor people could glean and always have what they need and the animals could flourish and so there would always be enough meat to eat as well. That's the idea. And in a sense, God's saying, when you rest, you know what happens? You provide for other people's rests. Some people wonder why I'm so strict about taking Mondays off. It's because if I don't take Mondays off, I will have no energy to work all day on a Sunday as a volunteer. And in doing so, I can rest then so that I can provide rest for hopefully, not me, but just me and the whole team, we can provide rest for you. This is why I'm also really sensitive to how much you as volunteers do as servants. Thank you. But also listen, when he says verse 14 to 17, three times a year you shall keep a feast for me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time of the month of Abib. And in it you sh- for in it you came out of Egypt. And this is the key I want you to notice. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest on the first fruits of the labor, and you shall sow in the field. You shall keep the, the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you shall make all males appear before the Lord your God. Now I want you to think about how hard this would be. For the, for the males who were responsible in an agrarian society to do so much of the work, to stop three times a year and to go away, often having to, to travel a long way by foot or by donkey or something, to go bring uh, very expensive sacrifices to say, God, we're here to worship you. To gather with all the other men of Israel to say, God, we're here to worship you. Now, I am thankful personally that we don't have to go to Jerusalem three times a year. Beautiful place to be. I'm thankful I've gotten to go once in my lifetime, but I'm glad we don't have to go three times a year. But there's a purpose here. There's a, there's a principle here, and that is this. Worshiping obedient means we're celebrated with as gathered people. If you didn't feel a difference between us gathering here today and us just seeing as something on Zoom, you don't get what it means to worship as a gathered people. Because it's not just how cool it is when we all sing the at the same time, though that's great or how great it is for us to hear the same message at the same time, though that's great. It's about us coming together, listen, and nobody comes, listen, no one comes empty-handed. It doesn't matter if you're on a, a, a serving team or not that week, you come ready to give and receive. That's what makes gathering together worshipful. God, I expect that you're so good, you can speak through any of these numbskulls to me. And God, I I believe you're so good, you can use even me, the greatest thumb school, to speak to others, to encourage others. Listen, I'm not naive. I know how hard it is for various reasons to get here every week, week in and week out. I get it. I really do. And there's no condemnation. But there's something that God calls us to that we want to be obedient to if we're gonna really worship him. Lastly, quickly, verses 18 and 19. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord. And it gets into that young goat thing. I honestly don't know what the young goat thing means. I looked it up and people had all kinds of different ideas. I have no idea what it means. I'm sure it made sense to them. But here's the principle that I think we need to see. We worship obediently by offering what's pleasing to him. God is not looking for us to bring a physical sacrifice of some kind of specified thing. Though it's good for us to bring a sacrifice of praise, according to Hebrews. It's good for us to bring a sacrifice financially to support the work of God. But here's the thing I think that we really need to see about worshiping obedient. Listen, Psalm 147, I'll close with this. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of men. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Do you see the goodness of God in these principles? Do you see, are you convinced through this, and more so through what Christ did for you by dying for you on the cross, that the goodness of God is toward you. That rather than pour out wrath on you and me, which we deserve, he absorbed it on himself at the cross. And rather than leave us incapable of ever changing, he resurrected so he could declare us righteous and so he could pour into us his Holy Spirit so that we could change and we could live out these principles now. Do you fear him? Do you hope in that kind of everlasting love? That's our challenge for us today. Father, I pray that you would help us to hope in you and you alone. And I pray, Lord, again, that as we uh, continue to fellowship today, as we continue to fellowship this week, as we continue to go about our everyday lives, we would say you call us to, to show your goodness through obedience in everyday life. And that we would trust that what Jesus has done as the perfectly obedient one is enough to secure your steadfast love for us. May we hope in that. Please, Lord, meet us here today, we pray. and We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.